Okay. Today's date is May 2nd, 2021. We're reading from the big book, AA, the big book of AA, pages 90 to 91. And Victoria is going to be our reader, followed by a 20-minute share by Andrea. Victoria, can you read our text? Yep. Hi, I'm Victoria. I'm a compulsive eater. When you discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, find out all you can about him. If he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste your time trying to persuade him. You may spoil a later opportunity. This advice is given for his family also. They should be patient, realizing they are dealing with a sick person. If there is any indication that he wants to stop, have a good talk with the person most interested in him, usually his wife. Get an idea of his behavior, his problems, his background, the seriousness of his condition, and his religious leanings. You need this information to put yourself in his place, to see how you would like him to approach you if the tables were turned. Sometimes it is wise to wait till he goes on a binge. The family may object to this, but unless he is in a dangerous physical condition, it is better to risk it. Don't deal with him when he is very drunk, unless he is ugly and the family needs your help. Wait for the end of the spree, or at least for a lucid interval. interval. Let his family or a friend ask him if he wants to quit for good and if he would go to any extreme to do so. If he says yes, then his attention should be drawn to you as a person who has recovered. You should be described to him as one of a fellowship who, as a part of their own recovery, trying to help others and who will be glad to talk to him if he cares to see you. If he does not want to see you, never force yourself upon him. Neither should the family hysterically plead with him to do anything, nor should they tell him much about you. They should wait for the end of his next drinking bout. You might place this book where he can see it in the interval. Here, no specific rule can be given. The family must decide these things, but urge them not to be over-anxious, for that might spoil matters. Usually, the family should not try to tell your story. When possible, avoid meeting a man through his family. Approach through a doctor or an institution is a better bet. If your man needs hospitalization, he should have it, but not forcibly unless he is violent. Let the doctor, if he will, tell him he has something in the way of a solution. When your man is better, the doctor might suggest a visit from you. Though you have talked with the family, leave them out of the first discussion. Under these conditions, your prospect will see he is under no pressure. He will feel he can deal with you without being nagged by his family. Call on him while he is still jittery. He may be more receptive when depressed. See your man alone if possible. At first, engage in general conversation. After a while, turn the talk to some phase of drinking. Tell him about your drinking habits, symptoms, and experiences to encourage him to speak of himself. If he wishes to talk, let him do so. You will thus get a better idea of how you ought to proceed. If he is not communicative, give him a sketch of your drinking career up to the time you quit, but say nothing for the moment of how that was accomplished. If he is in a serious mood, dwell on the troubles liquor has caused you, being careful not to moralize or lecture. If his mood is light, tell him humorous stories of your escapades. Get him to tell some of his. Thanks, Victoria. Wait a minute, okay. one more paragraph. Oh, oh yeah, okay. When, <laughs> when he sees you know all about the drinking game, 
commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. You can read the whole paragraph up to the top of the next page. Tell him how baffled you were, how you finally learned that you were sick. Give him an account of the struggles you made to stop. Show him the mental twist, which leads to the first drink of a spree. We suggest you do this as we have done it in the chapter on alcoholism. If he is alcoholic, he will understand you at once. He will match your mental inconsistencies with some of his own. Thank you. Well worth it, Victoria. <laughs> okay. And now I'm happy to introduce, and introduce Andrea, our speaker for today. Welcome, Andrea. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you. My name is Andrea. I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm from Wayne, New Jersey. Thank you, Kim, for asking me to speak this morning. It really is an honor and a privilege to be asked to speak at Overeaters Anonymous. Um, and, you know, I'm really impressed with this meeting. You've got so 128 people, per, you know, on here right now, which is just phenomenal. And you're so structured and organized. And I love how you have a beginner's meeting at the end. You know, my first step was really that it was really somebody's 12th step. So these, these steps are circular, they're not linear. We just, we go around and around and around and we carry this message. My abstinence date, I just celebrated 26 years, was April 29th, 1995. And by the grace of a loving higher power, this fellowship, the steps and all of you, you know, I've not found it necessary to have that compulsive bite in this time. There are lots of reasons that I could have had to take that compulsive bite, but I'm just so grateful that that higher power stepped in between. And I didn't understand that at the beginning. You know, just to review step 12, step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So that means that for me to effectively carry the message to be able to take somebody through the big book I need to have done the first 11 steps that's you know people say like this is the work but I've heard it said by a gentleman in Colorado Don P you know the first 11 steps isn't the work it's the preparation for the work the real work begins now in step 12 when we get out there and we get in the trenches and we carry the message and we share our experience strength and hope and take people through the steps of Overeaters Anonymous and it says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, that spiritual awakening means that I don't think the way I used to think. I believe that I came out of the gate with this disease and I had a really hard time at the beginning identifying it as a real disease. But if I just break down the word dis-ease, like that pretty much sums it up. From a very young age, like I would walk away from the table with certain meals and, and I couldn't stop eating and everybody at the table would say, I'm so full, I'm not gonna eat anything for the rest of the night, and, and they didn't. And I would say the same thing and then secretly unbutton my pants. And then, you know, just what am I getting? Because like, as full as I was, I had, I just wanted more. And I, I never understood it growing up. I didn't understand it until I came in here. And what I understand today is that my body doesn't metabolize certain foods the way normal eaters' bodies metabolize certain foods. When I eat certain foods, I get a physical craving for more. And then once I get that physical craving, it makes it like impossible for me to not eat more. It's as if like, sometimes if I'm hungry, I can, you know, it's, it's a physical hunger. I could weigh and measure my food. I eat what I'm supposed to eat. And then I'm done. Like I'm satisfied and I'm done. 
But when I have that physical craving on me, it's as if the refrigerator puts a noose around my neck and drags me to it and just keeps me there until I, until I just stuff my face and I can't help it. And I didn't understand that until you explained it to me. And it would be really nice if it was just that physical problem that I had where I have that physical craving when I eat certain substances, because then all I have to do is not eat certain substances. And I've tried that over and over and over again. And it just, it never worked because after I was on a diet for a period of time, I wasn't having the physical cravings. And I thought, oh, I've been good. You know, all these judgments, I've been good. So it's okay if I have just one, whatever. And then I'd have that one. And then either that same day or the next day, like it would just get in my head or it would get in my body. And the next thing I know I'm binging again. I didn't understand how that happened. And I repeated that over and over and over again. And this whole cycle is driven by this uncomfortable feeling I have inside, like this restless, irritable, and discontent as our big book describes it. So this spiritual malady, like this disease is threefold. It's body, mind, and spirit. I don't feel okay inside. I don't feel like I'm good enough. I don't fit in. I'm not right. I'm depressed. I'm this, I'm that. If only you would behave better. If only, you know, my boss said this, if like all these, if onlys and all this turmoil inside, I wouldn't know how to deal with it. And then I'd get this thought that food's going to make it better. And for a long time it did. And I didn't even know I was using food. So I take that first bite, not knowing that it's triggering this physical allergy. So when I get this allergy and I, I take that first bite and now I'm compelled to continue to eat, the obsession is on me, you know, and the physical craving is on me and it just goes around and around and around. And I'm grateful for this fellowship because in Overeaters Anonymous, like this disease is threefold, body, mind, and spirit. And my recovery is threefold. I have you know, the recovery, which comes in the 12 steps, the unity, which comes in the 12 traditions in the fellowship and the 12 concepts like this of service where I get to freely give back what's been so freely given to me. And this 12th step, now I get to carry the message of recovery to other people. And I'm really grateful that I can do that. There's on page, um, 124 in the big book, it says, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. And that's what I get to do. That's what we all get to do once we get recovered, is that we get to avert death and misery for others. And then this chapter tells us how we go about doing that. So it says, when you discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, find out all you can about them. And usually I discover this prospect, like this book was written in like 1939, was published in 1939. And it says like you can approach through a doctor or an institution, but now we're so blessed. There's, you know, now we're up to 134 people here. There's plenty of people here. Like we don't have to go out searching for compulsive overeaters. They're showing up right here in our meetings. And now with Zoom, we've got even more people from all over the world. So we really have an opportunity to get this message out there and this group is doing a phenomenal job in doing that. So now I need to get to know all about that person. So when I talk to them, you know, I, you know, a lot of times they'll start talking to me, but then I can start talking to them. Do they overeat? Do they undereat? Is it, are there certain foods that they, that trigger them? And I never liked that word trigger. I still don't like that word trigger, but it's true. Like, are there certain foods that trigger them? Cause there were definitely certain foods that triggered me and other foods that I could eat that, um, you know, that don't. 
So I find out all that I can about, do they believe in a higher power? Did they ever, are they atheists? Are they not like, where are they with that? And not a judgment on them, but like, I, I have to take in and understand like what they're like, because it says to get to know everything about them so that I need this information to put myself in their place to see how I would like him to approach me if like the tables were turned. So as I meet with people, and I have to bring prayer into this, by this time, by the time I'm in step 12, I have a higher power in my life. And I can pause and I can pray and ask my higher power to show me like what's the best way to help them. Some people need to be handled very gently and softly and slowly like my sponsor did with me in the beginning. I was brand new to the fellowship, I knew nothing and she just kind of threw out the line and just reeled me in slowly. And before I knew it, I was abstinent, I was following the food plan and I was doing this deal. So, you know, some people are brand new, they need to be reeled in slowly. Some people have been around for a long time and they like they could recite the book, but, they, but they're not applying it in their lives. Like I got to find out everything about them and then you know, try to put myself in their place. Like how would I want to be approached? You know, we, we have that golden rule, do unto others as we would like for them to do unto us. But no, that's not true. We have to do unto others the way they would like to be, you know, the way they want to be treated, the way it would be best for them. So, I, so each person is different. And with more experience, like it just becomes more intuitive to know. And I know in the beginning, it was like before I even opened my mouth, like I would always consult with my sponsor and, you know, pray, talk to my sponsor and, you know, and then just like learn how to trust my intuition. And it's become, um, you know, it's become greater and greater and greater through time. You know, it didn't happen overnight, but just like my relationship with food developed over a period of many, many years, it took a long time for me to you know, to lose the, to get that relationship with the higher power that took time to do that. It says too, that's really important. If he does not want to stop eating compulsively, don't waste your time trying to persuade them. I've gotten lots of phone calls with people who just aren't ready and that's okay. All I can do is plant the seed and hopefully make their eating a little bit more uncomfortable and a little bit more objectionable until they become entirely ready. You know, talks about the family here and it, it's okay to talk to the family. And I did that one time, actually. I, um, I had a, a woman I was sponsoring and she asked me if I could talk and explain things to her boyfriend. And, and I was able to do that. And I got on the phone with him and I talked to him and I was able to explain this disease and how she's very sick and, um, you know, and just, and went from there. And it, and so we, we are in this unique position to be able to help the compulsive overeater and also talk to the family to help them understand. You know, once it talks, I think on like next time, like we have to decide, like once we get to know this person, do we really believe that they are a real compulsive overeater? Real compulsive overeater means they have that mental obsession, which causes them to take that first bite. And then once they get that first bite, they get that physical craving. And then they compulsively overeat until they stop. And then they stop and then they have that you know, restless, irritable discontent again until they can't go on any longer until they have to have that first bite again. They're in that cycle of addiction. And if somebody's in that, you know, that's when we get, that's when I ask them, like, are you done? Do you want to quit for good? It's not like, oh, can you stop for 24 hours? Like, are, are you done? And then once they're done, then it's like, okay, one day at a time, we can work through this. And I remember in the beginning, 
I didn't get that one day at a time. Like I didn't really understand the one day at a time because I knew I, I knew I was done. I knew I couldn't do it anymore. I knew I was licked and I knew I was in really big trouble because I knew I was going to die. And all I wanted to do was die. And I couldn't imagine never eating sugar again, but I couldn't imagine eating sugar again. Like it was just, it was an awful place to be. I, I was at that jumping off place. And I don't think my sponsor asked me if I, if I wanted to quit for good, because that would have probably scared the daylights out of me. So again, like I had to be drawn in slowly. So I don't know, you know, perhaps somebody who's been around a while, I might say, are you done? But if somebody who's brand new, they wouldn't understand that language. So you have to talk to somebody brand new in the language that they best understand. And I, you know, I've, and I've asked, and I say to them, like, you don't ever have to eat like that again. And that like really piques their attention. And I, and I can share that, like, I don't eat that way anymore. And I can share how I used to binge, how I used to get in, you know, I couldn't stop. And then I couldn't, you know, the, the important thing was like, I could stop, I've been on lots of diets and they all work. But the problem was that like, once I got on the diet and I lost the weight, and most of the times I didn't lose all the weight. Um, but once I got on the diet, yeah, the diet worked, but I couldn't, I'd stop, but then I couldn't stay stopped. Like staying stopped was my big problem. If I could stay stop, I wouldn't be here talking to you this morning. So once I, you know, I find out about them, ask them, you know, if they don't want to eat like that anymore, or whatever language is going to be best for that person, you know, are you willing to go to any lengths, even though you might not know what any lengths might look like? Like, are you willing to do anything? And at that point, like, when I came in, I was so broken. If my sponsor said, I want you to go stand on your head in that corner and chew on nails, I would have gone over into the corner, stood on my head and chewed on nails. Like I would have done anything. I was just, I was done. And I, you know, I'm just grateful that I was done. It goes on to say, if he doesn't want to see you, never force yourself upon him. So I can't talk somebody into being done. They're either done or they're not done. Like I, I can't make them be done. I've, and I've been through that. I've tried to make people be done. And I, and I do not have that kind of power. And that kind of power only comes from a higher power. And I didn't understand that until I was in the fellowship, probably for about, probably about seven years or so. You know, something that I will say, I came in in 95 and I didn't get into the big book until 2003, but I'm really blessed because the obsession was removed after about a month. And even though I didn't have the obsession to not eat, the obsession, yeah, the obsession to eat was removed. And, and that was by a grace of a loving higher power. I patted myself on the back for like seven years thinking, yeah, I'm not eating. I'm not stopping at the fast food places. I'm not going to, I'm not, it's all about me. I'm not doing all this stuff. And then it suddenly occurred to me, it's like, I don't want to stop at a fast food place. It does, the thought doesn't even occur to me. I don't have the thought to go into my refrigerator to take something out. I don't even have the thought to go into the cabinet to take out whatever my binge, I, it, the thought wasn't even there. Then I realized I wasn't doing it. Somehow the thought didn't come to me anymore. And that was when I realized like, there's definitely a higher power working in my life. So as grateful as I was that the obsession was removed and I was following a food plan for about seven years, it didn't solve my problem because my problem was me. I'm restless, irritable, and discontent, content. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that is the root of my problem. So here's Andrea, seven years um, dry or like not eating compulsively, but wanting to die. And I, you know, and I wasn't okay. 
And I finally got brought to a sponsor who introduced me to the big book. And we sat down and we went through all 12 of these steps. And I was able to have that spiritual awakening. And it's not like I got this great overwhelming God conscience. I just started to, my thinking just started to change. And that, that was the spiritual awakening is not seeing things the way I used to see things. Like when I first came in, I was a raw nerve. Like as I'm sharing, like I was not, I was following a food plan. I was abstinent in those respects, but my mind was still crazy. You know, I was miserable. I was angry all the time. I was not a pleasant person to be around because I didn't have my solution anymore. Food was my solution. You know, food is what calmed me. Food is what numbed me. Food is what fixed me. Now I didn't have anything to fix me. And when I, so when I came in here, I was just a raw nerve. And it wasn't until like I start, you know, over time, you know, going to meetings and doing, following the suggestions of my sponsor, like that passed a little bit, but I really didn't get the freedom until I went through the 12 steps because this process gets me to be who I really am. Because me dry without, me dry following a food plan, like I'm a crazy person. And you can ask my husband that question. And uh, my friend is on here this morning too. You can ask her because she knew me since I came in here this morning. Um, so are they willing to go to any lengths? And, you know, and it says to wait till a lucid interval. And a lot of times, like they come into an OA meeting the morning after a binge or the day after a binge, they're in a pretty good place to be done. And you got to catch them in that low spot because they might have that little, that might be that tiny little crack that we can get in there, explain what this disease is, the physical craving, the mental, well, the restless irritable discontent, the obsession, the physical craving and that cycle where they just might be able to follow a food plan for a couple of days, get the sugar out of this, their system or whatever their trigger foods are out. Then we can get in and get the steps in there and get that higher power working in their lives. It says, see your man alone if possible, engage in general conversation. After a while, turn the talk to some phase of eating. So I can tell them about like, you know, what I used to do, which I've just shared with you. And then eventually like, you know, and, and with that, listening to them, I get to know how I proceed. And then eventually they're gonna ask me, like, how did you do it? And then I get to tell them like what I did. And again, I have to talk to them in the language that they understand. If somebody's been around for a long time, I can talk to them about steps. I could talk to them about inventory. I could talk to them about amends. But if somebody's brand new, I can talk to them about how I sat down with the sponsor and we read this book together and we turned the statements into questions and we did what the book said. And some of the things that we did is like, I really understood what makes me a compulsive overeater. And then like, I wrote down all the people I was mad at and, you know, I put that on paper and like the fears that I have and how I've hurt people. And then what I did is like, and I was able to like, look at all this. And then I was able to go back to people that I've hurt with all this guilt and shame I've had my whole life. And I've been able to like make right the wrongs that I have. Like if I start using words like big book and amends and inventory and character defects, they're somebody brand new will look at me like I have two heads. Somebody who's been, so it depends on the person. That's why I really have to get to know that person, what their habits are and how best to approach them. So, you know, at that point, like, you know, I kind of take this on with my conversation then I can, can describe myself as a real compulsive overeater. And I can share how baffled I was, how I've tried diet after diet and it just didn't work. 
how I would eat and be full, but I couldn't stop, how I couldn't lay down in bed at night because I was so full. It felt like the food was going to come back up. Tell them how I can go on like lots of diets and how they, you know, if I could do it, like it worked for a little while, but I couldn't stay stopped. How like I'd get that thought, I've been good, I can have just one. Or, you know, I've gotten to my goal weight, now I could eat normally, and I have no clue what normal is. I mean, I've followed diets that would be like normal eating, but because I'm a compulsive overeater, normal, you know, isn't in my vocabulary. You know, I've been with my kids in the car and they're eating something and I'm driving and there's stuff oozing all over the place. They're like, mommy, I can't finish this. And I, my response to them is like, well, you're not my daughter. Like, like, where did you come from? And I'm just so grateful that, you know, they don't appear to have this. Um, so again, I, you know, I could just share with them my experience, strength and hope, what I've done. And hopefully they're interested enough so that they will call me. And then I can call them and check in on them. Like, you know, like sometimes the phone is just too heavy to pick up. So then it's my responsibility to call them and ask them how they're doing, not to nag them or anything. And then when they're ready, hopefully they know that they can come to me and I can be that beacon of light for them that they so need. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you very, very much. That was pretty powerful.